1: Each individual grape variety has a unique genetic profile that determines its personality. Today, we're taking a deeper look into Petit Verdot. Where Where did it come from? How does it grow? What does it mean? Where Where is it used? Why does it taste that way? Who is growing it? Why is it used? How old is it? Historically, Petit Verdot was thought to be a native of Bordeaux, and we start to see it mentioned in writings in the mid-1700s. But recent findings suggest that it was domesticated in the Pyrenees from wild grapevines. The ripening season for this grape variety is quite long. It's one of the earlier plants to push buds, but one of the last to ripen. In fact, the name Verdot alludes to the color green and the green flavors that the unripe grape can often have. But when ripe, many producers refer to it as seasoning for its ability to add a boost in flavor and spice to blends. You'll find Petit Verdot on a list of Bordeaux varieties from 1774. In 1841, you'll find Verdot, Cabernet, Malbec, and Carminier listed as major varieties. In 1874, Verdot was still considered to be one of the most important grape varieties in the region. In the 1800s, Petit Verdot was heavily planted in certain parts of the left bank. But today, it usually makes up a small percentage, about 1 to 3 percent, of several left bank blends. A few Chateaux have recently increased their plantings of Petit Verdot. Most cite global warming, though increased plantings still keep the grape variety at a minority in the blends. In 1855, the first growths weren't using much Petit Verdot, but it is of more importance today in this category of wines. Many changes in the last couple of centuries can be attributed to the massive replantings that took place after Phylloxera and again after the freeze of 1956. But despite the fact that Petit Verdot has been in Bordeaux, albeit in small quantities recently, if you look at wine resources from even as recent as the 1960s, you'll find very little on Petit Verdot. Printed in the late 1960s, Petit Verdot doesn't appear in the index of the Great Book of Wine. And under its Bordeaux chapters, there are lengthy entries about soil type and exhaustive lists of producers, but no mention of Petit Verdot except for one sentence in reference to Bly. In this sentence, the book suggests that Verdot is not found elsewhere in Bordeaux. Well, we know it was there, but the fact that it wasn't mentioned in this important resource indicates that it wasn't part of the major conversations happening about Bordeaux wine at the time. If you leaf through a few more older wine publications, the 1999 edition of the Oxford Companion mentions a Petit Verdot revival among top-quality producers. The 01 Wine Bible briefly mentions Petit Verdot as a minor grape used. Jump ahead to 2007, in the Sotheby's Wine Encyclopedia, leaf through the Bordeaux section on grape varieties, and there's one sentence mentioning that Petit Verdot plantings are on the decline, and have been since the 1980s. But something has changed. In 1988, France had about 300 hectares of Petit Verdot planted. By 2009, in just about 20 years, this had almost tripled to 862 hectares. But the change seems to be driven by a higher interest in Petit Verdot outside of Bordeaux. If you take a look at the grape data in What Price Bordeaux, you'll see that among classified growths in Bordeaux, Petit Verdot has actually stayed pretty steady from 1985 to 2007 at 3% of their plantings, while Cabernet's have noticeably decreased, and Merlot has noticeably increased. Globally, these days you'll find Petit Verdot in most regions that are working with Bordeaux-style blends, such as Hawke's Bay in New Zealand, Margaret River in Cunawara in Australia, Stellenbosch in South Africa, New York's North Fork of Long Island, Washington State, and the Super Tuscans of Italy. These regions use Petit Verdot much as it's used in Bordeaux, as a small percentage blender. But you'll find a few people blending it with other grapes. It's been mixed with Alicante Boucher in Portugal and Tenat in Peru. And aside from being a blender, several regions with long and hot growing seasons, sufficient enough for regular ripeness have 100% Petit Verdots on the market, notably Portugal and Spain, Australia, and several producers in Virginia and California. It's important to keep an eye on grapes like these because though it plays a small supporting role in many Bordeaux wines, the older it gets, and Petit Verdot is at least about 300 years old, the more its DNA becomes a special part of wine history, and the longer potential it has to spawn its own new grape varieties, and the larger its genetic family will become. And perhaps it will even play an even more important role in the future, as Chateau turn to grapes like Petit Verdot if climate change forces a drastically different status quo.
0: It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. That's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, -S 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 dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Larry Turley on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Good evening. Good evening. Nice to see you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you grew up in Georgia?
2: Born in Tennessee, grew up in Augusta, Georgia, and kept heading west. Where did you end up? Uh, Napa Valley, St. Helena. How did that happen? Well, it was by mutual consent that I left the South. I left Georgia Tech, went out to New Mexico to St. John's College. From there, I traveled some and ended up in uh, Napa Valley on my motorcycle. I liked it, did my internship in, in San Francisco, and uh, started working in Santa Rosa. Lived in the Napa Valley, commuted over the mountain, and stayed ever since. Bought a house in 74, and still there. Same house. How old was the house? Uh, it was built in 1850, so it's older than I am. So it was a bit of a fixer-upper. <laughs> it was eight inches out of level and sitting on the ground. So I jacked it up put a new foundation on it, and lowered it back down, and it took five years for the high corner to touch. But it finally did, and the house stopped talking.
0: You were drawn to wine. Well, yes.
2: Uh, When I was in high school, my um, oldest sister brought back a bottle of Centimillion. She'd lived in France for a year. This is in Augusta, Georgia. It's demon alcohol. And uh, But my mom, we served it at, at lunch, and I have a pretty vivid imagination, so I tasted it, and there were knights in armor, and there were round tables, and it was pretty spectacular. That was my first taste, first taste of alcohol. Of course, I was at age 10. I got kicked out of the founding church of the Southern Baptist Convention because I wouldn't back down when they... I said that our Lord changed water into wine. And the shark-skinned, suited Sunday school teacher said, No, Larry, that was grape juice. I said, What? And out I went, never to return. My parents uh, shortly thereafter left and went to Catholic Light or Episcopal and then later Full Bottle Catholic. Um, And that was sort of, I think, a precursor. So I just gradually became more interested in it. My sisters gave me Julia Child's first little cookbook, a little paperback of her shows. I was in medical school in a dorm in in Augusta, Georgia. And I opened it up, and there was a rosemary and mustard-encrusted leg of lamb. Hot damn. So I cooked that, and the wine pairing was a burgundy. I go to the liquor store. And lo and behold, it had a Burgundy. It had the H word in front of it, as in Hardy. And I drank most of that while cooking. I said, this cooking is really fun. But when I came back from, from buying the wine, about half the dorm was at my front door because it filled up the smell of the whole place. And that was my introduction to cooking and, and drinking while you cook. Uh, my sister gave me, my oldest sister gave me a, a saying. It says, I always cook with wine, and sometimes I put it into food. It's pretty accurate.
0: And you got into the medical profession.
2: I did. I traveled with a sex change specialist in uh, Austria. Cool. Uh, uh, MD.
0: I always wanted to do that.
2: I mean, I can't make this stuff up. <laughs> you, can, you can check uh, Google Austrian skier Erica to Eric, who's now very happy. And I said, wow, this is unusual. Um, Came back, went to medical school, and have worked in emergency medicine for 24 years. What was that like? It was pretty intense. The only doctor in the hospital at night. I delivered a lot of babies and saw anything that came in the door. Average career at that time was 11 years. And you stuck around for about twice that. I did, yeah.
0: What attracted you to it?
2: Well, during medical school, I, I just gravitated towards the emergency room. I, I guess I bore easily. I like pediatrics, I like medicine, plastic surgery, all of that, but not as a steady diet. So I got to do all of that in in the emergency room, and I enjoyed I enjoyed thinking on my feet. I enjoyed most people being better after you saw them, and I enjoyed having time off. So it worked out well for me.
0: Oh, because you could kind of put in a lot of time and then take some time away. Yes. And did that help later with the wine thing? It did. I was, worked full-time all
2: through. I started Frog's Leap with John Williams in 1981. I uh, worked all through that, sold the label to him, kept the hot tub and uh, in 93, and now retired from active medicine in 97. So all during that time, I worked full-time in medicine. And how did you meet John Williams? I bought my house in 74 and worked that night. Came home in the morning after working all night, and there was a tent in my front yard. I was a little cranky, so I drove through the tent, and there was John Williams in it. He, My sister Helen was at Cornell and had told him that uh, she thought that I'd bought a house, and he tracked it down. So I asked him what he was doing at the time. Uh, not quite that tone of voice. And lo and behold, he reached under his pillow, pulled out a bottle of wine, and said I was about to have a glass of wine. This is 7 o'clock in the morning. So he couldn't be all bad. So he moved in, helped me redo the house. We started frog sleep. Times fun when you're having flies. We had uh, the hot tub was instrumental. We had no idea could be brought to fruition without first being discussed in the hot tub. So that's why I kept the hot tub.
0: Still popular today. I've. Been it is. It is. He was going to work at Spring Mountain.
2: Yes, he came out to interview and later came back to, and had the job there. We started Frogsley, made it up there for a couple of years. And then 84, I redid the old barn on the property and we moved down there.
0: And you got that label commission from that young kid. Yeah, Chuck House. Yeah, John,
2: we had $300 left after we bought barrels. And John wanted to give it to Chuck House for, oh, I hope he doesn't hear this, uh, for the label, 300 bucks. I said, nah, let's give him 100 and save 200 for a party. So we did. And he did a. Fabulous job on the label. He, he won Best Graphic Artist of the Year of that label and really launched his career. He's done, uh, did Turley label for me and is just uh, astoundingly talented. So it's worked out well.
0: Because in both ways they kind of have a sense of motion to it. Like the way that the, the Turley Y kind of moves on your label. Ah, yeah, I just liked it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll just take that one. <laughs> but what was it like working with John?
2: Oh, that was fun. That was fun. We got along great. He and Julie did most of the year-round work because I was working full-time. We, our office was in the winery and it wasn't heated, so nobody did anything in the office in the wintertime, <laughs> which didn't work out well all the time. And we grew Quite a bit. We exceeded our five-year plan the second year, and just had a great time. Started with 700 cases of Sauvignon Blanc, and ended up making a wide variety of varieties in quite a few cases. And he took that down to Rutherford and has done built a really great
0: sort of compound there. But you decided you were interested in Petite Sirah and Zen.
2: Yes at the time I had a young family uh, I live right at the winery we were doing tours for frog's leap and people would just come marching through the house and so that that wasn't uh, real handy I wanted to have a smaller winery at the time and specialize in zin so we I, he, I sold him the label he moved and I started with 3 wines probably I don't know how much I made that first year but we're up to 35 wines now Great business model. That's been fun, though. Helen helped me the first two years uh, make the wines. She, uh, Aaron Jordan, was working with her the second year. Then I got involuntarily terminated, and uh, um, Aaron, Aaron, who'd been working with her uh, at my place, said, "Hell, Larry, it's just like medicine. See one, do one, teach one. I can do it." And and he did. He did a great job. Eighteen years. You're saying
0: Helen broke up with you.
2: Oh, yeah. I guess that's the way you'd put it. Okay.
0: Not that the medical side broke up with you.
2: No. No, I was still working full time. Uh, I I never figured out how you fired an owner, but I guess I was a founding member of the Fired Owners Club. So we had a great time. We uh, started finding old vineyards. I think it was a carryover from my ER days that I think I can resuscitate anything. And some of them were in really bad shape. Been going to White Zinn or just really neglected. So it was fun to convert them to organic and uh, really see the results. You have to be patient. It takes three to four years to see really much of anything, any change in an older vineyard. They're all dry farmed, which is a big deal these days.
0: But back then, it wasn't so spoken about. So why did you move in that direction so early?
2: Well, they were all dry farmed anyway, anyway. so uh, I mean, there weren't a lot of Honda pumps back in the 1880s, so <clears throat> we kept that. We took over some vineyards that people had tried to irrigate, but that's not very successful in our opinion, and so we would wean them off the water, convert them to organic, reprune them, and uh, it's been fun. We plant a cover crop to fix nitrogen, plow that under, and... Uh, It was important to us to farm organically. I was born on an organic farm in Tennessee.
0: And Aaron had been around Europe a bit. Yes. Yes,
2: he had. And that that was very, I mean, he had a lot of exposure. No formal training. No one has ever had any formal training that I've hired. We didn't want to have to unlearn them, everything. So that's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. We have a real tight group. People know what, enjoy their work, and really do a great job we spend a lot of time in the vineyards we're pretty lazy in the winery we don't do much we don't filter we don't find we don't actually crush the grapes we just destem. so all i'd say 80 percent of the wine is made in the vineyard so that's where we spend most
0: of the time sometimes it's whole berry maybe floating on the top well uh
2: if you don't crush there's probably 50 to 70 percent whole berries a little less by the time you get in the tank but we do long long fermentations somewhat religious some people have said because we've done some 40 days and 40 nights but not all that long but so when we finish when they show up dry on hydrometer in the tank and we press them, we get a bump of about a point and a half of sugar from squeezing the whole berries. Oh, I see. So it finishes fermenting in the in the barrel then, which we think really gives it a nice smooth finish. And then sometimes it takes until the following summer to finish malolactic.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the vineyards that you've worked with over the years and then that you've found more recently. What are some of the standouts for you?
2: Well, the one we started with, the Hain Vineyard was farmed by the Bourne family, planted by the Bourne family, and farmed many years, and was planted in 1904. It's in the town of St. Helena up against the, the western foothills. They were wealthy enough to continue farming it all during Prohibition. So after Prohibition, many people came to that vineyard for budwood. So that's been just an outstanding vineyard, the, the Zinfandel and the Petite Syrah. We found... We farm in 10 different counties, the distance from Bordeaux to Burgundy, 350 miles apart from uh, all the way up towards Ukiah and Mendocino County, all the way down to San Luis Obispo County, east of Sacramento, up in the Sierra foothills, Napa, Sonoma. Mostly Tegan's nose them out or word of mouth people have come to us. I have this old vine vineyard. People are paying me $500 a ton for white zen. So we would go and look at it and we're off to the races. Uh, some are very small, two acres I think is the smallest. But I really, I mean, they're, they're really historic. I mean, we have our oldest vineyards planted in 1885. That's 20 years after the war of Northern aggression. It, uh, you know, in the South, people are worrying about reconstruction. They're drinking wine and planting grapes in California. So that's why I'm in California. It hit, uh, it's astonishing to me that people planted a number of vineyards during Prohibition. Uh, I say they were either eternal optimists or they knew somebody in Chicago. But that, uh, it, it, they're some of the best vineyards that, uh, that survive. One of the things about Zin, old Zinfandel is uh, when the immigrants from Italy came and planted, uh, started with uh, Primitivo, uh, which they got from Croatia and planted, and it's gradually evolved to a slightly different clone. But they planted, say, 20 acres, and had farmed it for maybe a couple of generations. Along came prohibition, and you can't make that much sacramental wine. So the farmer would say, "Well, I got to pull it out and plant prunes or walnuts." but I'm not going to pull out this five acres because it's just too special. So that's what survived. So we're, it was a, I mean, I would love to have more of them, but really the best of the best survived. So these are astonishing. Vine- and when you think about, if you look in the valley and live, I've lived there almost 40 years. Uh, I've seen a number of replantings. And, you know, I look at the other, the old Zin, and it's still going strong. We get up to some occasionally three tons to the acre on an old vineyard.
0: Because sometimes now people replant on like a 15-year cycle.
2: Uh, it's astonishing to me, but, I mean, it's like you're not going to live long on steroids. I mean, the uh, the chemical assault on vineyards is astonishing.
0: You've had vineyards that have been uprooted and that you've had to move on. Like yes. Like was next door to your St. Helena property. Right. That was uprooted by money. <laughs> but, I mean, yes, probably that happens uprooted. a lot. yeah. yeah. Like uprooted by money is probably the main cause of yeah, and then
2: planted to the Cabernet. It lost the Hain Petite Syrah, half of that. Yeah, that was a travesty. I've got I've leased from the city of Saint Helena the library vineyard right in town, which is pretty awesome. It is. It is indeed. And I've I've gone through so so far six different plans from six different developers who want the city to give them money to develop, to build high-rise, to build low-income, to build office, police station. And this last go-around was, I said, you know, this is you want to put a historical society in, you're tearing up history to put a historical society in. So we'll see. You know, if you don't own the vineyard and you're in it for the long term, you're, that's not a good recipe for success. Things happen all along the way.
0: And the Library Vineyard is called that because it's behind the library. Right,
2: it's right all around the library. My kids, uh, Christina and Nellie, used to come, and uh, Whitney, Savannah, would come from the school, mostly Nellie, uh, Christina, and, okay, I'll get this straight. You'll see why I get, I'll tell you another story. But anyway, the two youngest ones, Savannah and Whitney, would come after school when I was pruning, and uh, would stack the the canes for about 15 minutes and then go into the library to study. So that was fun. Kept him out of trouble.
0: How did you meet Tegan?
2: He worked with us for a number of years. He, he would work down at uh, Napa Wine Company in the lab. And we were looking for someone to help us out in the winery. And he's been there 11 years now.
0: Pretty sharp he's guy. Very sharp guy. In the same way that you've had vineyards get replanted and you've lost them. You've also had vineyards come online. Like now yes. you have a, a Bohan Zinfandel source that you're breaking out on its own.
2: Yes, we've had that for a number of years, but it's, this is an exceptional year. This is the first year that really it may stand on its own. But we've added, I mean, I started with three, we're at 35. We did 95 picks out of the 35 vineyards. So we often will take a vineyard, even an old one, And it'll take three or four years, even if it's a really good vineyard, for us to establish our practices in the vineyard and get them to a point where they're a standalone or a single vineyard. They'll go into old vines, usually before that.
0: The old vines wine that you make. Yes. And there's also a juvenile.
2: Nothing to do with my police
0: record. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was digging for. (laughs) But what are those standards that you look for? What do you want it to look like in the vineyard?
2: Well, sometimes you have to, one thing that Helen did when she tasted the Hain Zinfandel's back in 93, 92, 93, uh, some other people were making it. And she said, these are really good grapes. I don't agree with the winemaking. I went, wow, that's impressive. So I said, okay, we'll take the vineyard. And you, you look for taste in the vineyard. You look for a site, soil, exposition. You don't want to be in a low spot for frost. It's just a heartbreak. I mean, to to try to farm that. So it's a whole combination of things. And really, it's easy with old vines in because the really good stuff has survived. If it's in a frost pocket, there are no vines there. I mean, people gradually pull them out.
0: Is that one of the reasons you're so drawn to Zin? I, I like
2: the taste. I love to eat and cook and. Uh, I think it it's extraordinary how it goes with almost any foods, and out of twenty four different zens, I can always find something to go with whatever I'm eating
0: but it seems like you could probably also tell the differences between those
2: on oh, a good day, some of them, yes, particularly the mountain zens and then some of the valley floor.
0: So what's the zen like across California, I and mean, all those different vineyards do you see different geographic patterns emerge
2: well, yeah. Mm, Not so much individual geography. So in the Napa Valley, uh, we have the Hain Vineyard, and then we have Howl Mountain. We have Rattlesnake Ridge, Dragon, and Cedarman, three different vineyards up there. They're some of the highest in the valley, 2,600 feet. It snows every year. They're intense, peppery, uh, mouth density, and it's the same clone. We took the budwood from the Hain Vineyard. It's extraordinarily different. I love mountains in for the winter time. Uh, there's a bear that lives up there, eats the grapes when they get really ripe. They look different, taste different, make different wine than the same clone on the valley floor. We have vineyards down in uh, Contra Costa County, planted in at least 50 feet of sand. Their own rooted, planted in 1896. You know, perhaps it's suggestion, but you you can taste that silica the sand uh, when you taste it it looks like you're at the beach oh yeah they're quite different
0: and in terms of growing how do you see the difference between zinfandel and petite Sirah? this petite has like less vigor right
2: much less vigor uh it ripens physiologically at a lower sugar the lighter bearing very small berries and small clusters It's not particularly finicky. It's, uh, again, the ones that we have that have survived all these years are doing well, but they just are
0: light or shy bears. Does it have problems lasting the same length of time that Zinfandel does?
2: I think our oldest is from the 50s. Oh, okay. 1950, so 60, 70 years old. I'd have to look up and see if there are any other older ones. I'm sure there are, but I just don't know.
0: So you kept up with your cooking?
2: Yes. I love to cook. Uh, I've got seven grills and four smokers. And I was over at Aaron Jordan's uh, winery, and I saw a really nice smoker over there. Aaron, where'd you get that? And he starts laughing. He said, Larry, that's yours. We're hiding it from your wife. <laughs> I guess I forgot about that one. You
0: know, I, I know this guy, and his, <laughs> he's a little older now, and he's uh, retired. He's got some spare time, and his wife went down to the, their basement recently and she hadn't been down there for a few years. And she, she thought one of the piles looked bigger than the last time that she was down there. And there was all these guitar, when she went to look at it, there was all these guitar boxes that he'd been hiding down there. Because he's been buying like five, six, seven guitars and he didn't want to tell her.
2: <laughs> I know the feeling. But you can't have too many grills. I just bought a schwank- I had uh, designed and built a, had the local machine shop build a schwanker. What is that? Th- that's, that's a guitar? No, it's oh. a grill.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a guitar. <laughs> no,
2: oh, yeah, it sounds like a lot of things. I first saw it in in the Mosel in Germany. It's a spinning, swinging kind of grill, uh, so you can cook on, over open fire or coals, really, really hot without burning it. So, I've had a great time with that. It's my newest toy.
0: But you like playing with fire, though?
2: I do. I do a lot. Got it. A couple fireplace. I cook in a fireplace in the winter in the house almost every night. Got a little Tuscan grill. Can always find something to grill.
0: And who was flying first? You or Aaron Jordan? I was. Uh, he used to fly with me, and uh, he got jealous of that. He's
2: like, One well, I day I'm going to have him. my own plane. No, I think he because I was so old, he got scared he might have to take over the controls. So uh, he used to. Uh, you know, we just did it really great. I did it actually like I would have liked to have been taught how to fly how's that uh, oh just gradually I and mean, so we'd fly down to pa- we were developing pasar at the time so we'd fly down there and you know we'd start off on the radio so he handled he's a quick study he handled the radio felt comfortable with that that's a big deal for some people and then he, i'd let him fly a while up there and gradually then he landed and then he went off and then uh, has done very well with uh, getting his various licenses
0: and uh, but apparently, he had to learn how to take off from somebody else. You're like, I'll teach you the radio and how to land. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> like, that's how you kept him. Them, kept them you
2: know, <laughs> like. no, he did he did well. Yeah, he flies quite a bit now.
0: But you yeah. did develop that winery in Paso Robles. Yes, we bought
2: the old Pacenti winery. I didn't mean to buy it. I just wanted the old vineyard there. It's all on calcaneous soils down there. And my wife imports burgundy, so I knew about calcium. So I was down there. And I said, What's that? And I said, Oh, it's the big white rocks all over the place. I said, I'll take it. Well, it wasn't quite that easy, but we uh I was so anxious, we repruned the vineyard before I ever closed the deal. And I think we closed in May and completely redid the winery for the next harvest. So it was a lot of work, but it's a great place done. There's some great vineyards. Now, that's where the ubroth vineyard planted in 1885
0: is that's one of the oldest like period in california I right i think so yeah there's some other
2: areas are a little vague they claim to things but it's hard to document back back around that time the grand pere vineyard is a similar vintage uh, as that up in the sierra foothills but yeah that's pretty old the first known Sale of Zinfandel vines was in 1832 in Boston, of all places.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah,
2: in a nursery, advertised
0: Zinfandel vines for sale. A lot of Croatians in Boston, I think. Who says? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't, I, don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. I'm just. I'm just trying to figure out in my mind how that. How that works.
2: So we went. I took a group of fifty to Croatia for to the birthplace of Zinfandel. Well, I took them. A cruise ship took them. Yeah. I was along with my whole family, so we had a great time. Don't go in August. Um, and it was they'd had a they had a tough time with Tito and then the Civil War and then a lot of vacation cottages got built on agricultural land. So the vineyards are small. Some of the wineries we saw were five barrels, very small, one room. But they were very excited that it's finally been shown that their grape, the Castellansky. Cyrillac, Kastelonsky, I think that's close. A lot of consonants. Uh, the same as Zinfandel. And they told one winer told this great story of their grandfather going to Chicago during Prohibition. Remember, we talked about that. And he wrote back, his job was to purchase fruit, wine, grapes in California, and make wine in Chicago. I'm sure it was, it was sacramental wine. And so he wrote back, it's what we have. He recognized it as Zinfandel, as uh, Castellanke. So they were very excited about that. That was a nice, that was a nice story. I, I thought it was pretty interesting. He went to Chicago in the wine business during Prohibition. You know that's what caused the Depression.
0: Well, it's, it's no coincidence that Sacramento and Sacramento sound the same, you know. <laughs> the, the relationship became even stronger. Yeah. Yeah, a
2: lot of the vineyards survived because there was a rail line in the Napa Valley and they would make wine in ovals or large barrels and load it onto rail cars, surround it with hay bales, sell it for a dollar a gallon to the East Coast, barrel and all.
0: So you ended up in St. Helena because you had made a visit to the Mondavi winery.
2: Made a visit there when I traveled out one time on my motorcycle. At the end of the day, I came cruising in, so this was probably 72, and uh, met a fellow that made dulcimers, worked as a tour guide there, became friends with him. He had a motorcycle also. So I, I liked the area. Finished medical school, did my internship in San Francisco, and came back to the valley, and I don't remember how the connection was. I think through him, he said, I know somebody who's looking for somebody to house sit for a year. I said, I'm in. I'm seldom there. I'm working all the time. So I house sat right next to Schramsburg for a year and liked the area. So I walked into or went into town and in tiny little real estate office, it was pretty sleepy in 74. guy put out a picture of an old farmhouse, said, you can go home again. So I walked in and said, I see that place. he said, nah, you don't want to see that. So he took me around to all these other places that I wasn't interested in. We drove down the driveway to this place. And I saw the house. I said, I'll take it. And he goes, what? I mean, it was different. But remember, I grew up in the South. so I was used to that. Uh, so I, I bought it. My parents came out. And they came down the driveway. And you could sort of see the house, but you saw the barn a little better. And it was in not as bad shape so they said is is that the house seeing the boy said no 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 it's over here and they turned looked, said, oh i wish it had been (laughs) (laughs) so that was the start of it so we worked all the time and fixed up the house and uh the first thing we had to do is jack it up but it's right on a creek so it used to flood pretty regularly but being eight inches out of level it cleaned up pretty easy everything went to one corner I've lived there ever since, and it grew in size a little bit. It's still a relatively modest house, but it's fun. You live outdoors most of the summer.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. That helps during the earthquake when you're not inside <laughs> yeah, to have anything right. fall on you. Right. Yeah. Where were you during this last earthquake?
2: I was in the air coming back from Europe, so I didn't know about it till I turned my phone on when I landed. and I got all these messages saying, you know, Jack and Barbara are fine. You know, I checked on the animals. I checked on Nelly. And I'm wondering what what they're talking about gradually it became clear that something had happened it happened about three o'clock in the morning well you know you were sleeping or trying to
0: not afterwards <laughs> <laughs> but you had a lot of not earthquake damage this time but there was an earthquake in the pastor robles area that oh yeah
2: 2003 december 23rd It was it was awful i was actually driving to the airport with the two youngest children to fly back to uh, Lena and I thought something was wrong with the car. I didn't know there's an earthquake, so I turned around and went back to the winery and I get out and it didn't dawn on me that everybody's standing around in the parking lot. And I said, This car is undrivable. Whoa, what happened here? The big red river running out down the street. So yeah, it knocked down all the barrels.
0: And once they kind of get going, they get going.
2: Right. There's once the front stack falls, it's uh it's dominoes and barrels are really strong they weigh about 600 pounds but the current vintage you have to put a bung in that will release the co2 so if that barrel even tips over all the wine will come out of that because
0: that bung has holes in it
1: right
2: the solid bungs in the older the previous vintage that finished fermenting they were fine unless it unless it broke open the barrel
0: and the bung is the thing that you put into the hole that Right. Uh, in the top of the barrel. Well, uh, hopefully it's the top unless there's an earthquake and it tips right, over. Yeah.
2: So we, uh, we got to work. I called up in St. Lena and we had a large, really large generator I used as a backup generator. Unfortunately, it was on a trailer. So that came down in the morning. We were the only winery with power and just went to work, cleaned it up. And it took us about six. Fortunately, it was very cold, about 30 degrees. So we drilled holes in the barrel. Put Aaron in a climbing harness and uh, anchored him with a couple of guys on a rope and uh, a drill in one hand and a wand to suck out the wine from the other and saved what we could. Put a little um, sticker on the wine that survived that with the Richter scale on it. Charged a dollar more a bottle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, stickers are expensive. yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: It was the only time I've raised prices in the last 16 years.
0: You know, it's true. They've always been the same price, which is pretty cool. I mean, you could have done the opposite pretty easily.
2: Yeah, I, Yeah, that's a... You know, what's surprising is I haven't been the subject of that on the other end. I've paid more for grapes. and well, I may have to look at that business model. That may explain my title on my business card.
0: What's that? Debtor. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: My wife doesn't think it's that funny.
0: But I mean, because from pretty early days he had high scores, a lot of people you know knew who the Turley name maybe from from Helen too, and there was a lot of I would say love for the wines in the market, so you easily could have doubled or tripled your prices, but you decided not to do that well
2: yeah i don't I don't know what it is, but i I don't like that marketing. I hate the the concept of you got to buy this schlock to get the good stuff. I would do the I do the opposite. I want to overperform and under deliver on the price. Um, so I want people to say, wow, if this is this good. I can't wait to get the good stuff. But I may have to look at some of that in the future, but right now, I mean, part of it is I, I don't like, uh, well, let's see how to say this. You know, I'm not very PC. I think PC means pre cocktails, but, I don't pay. I think a lot of pricing in wine is, uh, doesn't appeal to me. So I'm, I don't, I'm not a collector or uh, I don't indulge in really high priced wines. My wife imports burgundies and I enjoy them, but it's not something I go to a restaurant and pull my wallet down and throw it on the table.
0: I often find that attitude with people who like to cook.
2: Yeah. Sometimes hard to look at restaurant prices lists. Part of, the, part of the terrain, I guess.
0: But you must have seen the Napa Valley terrain change a lot while oh, you've been there. Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: Lifestyle. I'm up here for the
0: lifestyle. I
2: love that saying. Yeah. I, particularly when I'm cleaning out the
0: septic system. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that sign not far from the St. Helena facility It says, Relax, you're in Calistoga. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know that sign? Yeah.
2: I know the... You know, it seems like some of the people, young know, people, have made a lot of money in other things that, and maybe are not socially advanced. They have that attitude with, and it comes across anyway, uh, okay, uh, I have a winery. Now, can I get laid? Right, right, so, right.
0: I don't know. One of the things that has to have helped you throughout your whole career, besides your dashing good looks, which probably didn't have a problem getting laid would have been yeah. the calm thing because he seemed pretty calm and i bet that was helpful in the er and helpful during earthquakes and helpful with just sort of saying you know i like this house and i'm gonna do something with it and
2: yeah i don't know my people often ask me you know why i don't have a, a stronger southern accent i said well my mom was from minnesota and my dad didn't say much so it was pretty calm around the house but yeah i've when things really get hectic, uh, particularly in the ER, I, I always got even quieter because I was thinking. And, you know, you'd learn pretty quickly to triage in the emergency room. You know, you say that one's dead. I can't do anything for that and move on uh, because there's always patience to see and things to do. So it's it's. Help me be calm in the, in the winemaking. Uh, I can't do anything about the weather, so I don't worry about the weather. I get the best information I can. Flying helps that. I have access to a lot of really good weather reports. Um, and to be just really careful, particularly not filtering or fining. Uh, you, you don't want to approximate things. It's sort of like flying. You know, I think the runway is long enough. doesn't really fly. It doesn't, doesn't work.
0: The last guy to say that, we haven't seen him around for a few years <laughs> after he died. I
2: want, to be, I want to be an old pilot, not a bold pilot. So, you know, in winemaking, if you don't have the, the sort of all-encompassing safety net of sterile filtering, you have to be careful and really clean every step of the way.
0: Did flying help you find vineyards? Like when you're up in the air, you're like, hey, what's that over there?
2: Uh, not so much, but it helped me, I wouldn't have bought, uh, either Amador or Paso Robles if I didn't have a plane, because it's, particularly Paso Robles is a killer drive through San Jose, and if it's too much of a drive, you don't visit it often enough, but it's a 45 minute flight, so it's, and that's enjoyable.
0: So you can keep up with your own property through the yeah.
2: air. I like both areas very, very much, Amador and Paso Robles.
0: And what about some of the projects that you've done more recently in terms of like the label Cabernet and why did you decide to do that and how is it coming along?
2: Well, there's somebody that's joined the business that's quite a bit younger but related to me and she's got a lot of ideas. I don't know where she gets them. First off, it was White Zinfandel. My goodness, I never thought I'd see the day. And then when I bought the uh, property or the bank and I bought the property next door, it had a fair amount of Cabernet on it. And I, I pulled the Chardonnay out, but I couldn't afford to pull everything out. So I was, had some Cabernet. So we made some Cabernet. And I had to sort of eat crow because I'd always said <clears throat> people that drink Cabernet drink the label. People that drink Zen drink the wine now I made a Cabernet. What am I going to do? So Christina said, call it the label. Now you have to drink the label. So we did that. And we worked on the vineyard and brought it into balance. And in 2012, we changed the label. It will be under the Turley label. It's it's a very nice wine now. Reasonably priced. It's all organic. It's all estate. I I enjoy it now. It's it's made in the old style, 70s style. We use... uh, about 40% new oak is all. It doesn't taste like a toothpick. You can actually have food with it. So i just digging myself deeper and deeper.
0: No, I mean, it's made like kind of the old, like the BV uh, yeah, clone, exactly. right? Yeah. And a little more pyrazine, pir- a little more greener?
2: No, we don't. I don't like green, so we don't like that taste. No, I don't like that taste, so hopefully not. But, but it's uh, particularly 12 and 13 were exceptional vintages, so. We were very pleased how the vineyards responded, although it was large enough that I, I didn't want to make that much Cabernet. So probably as I sit here, where, for the first time in a long, long time in the history of the Napa Valley, I've got a big dozer in there pulling up Cabernet so I can plant Zinfandel. Oh, is that true? Yeah, <laughs> got to get a picture of that. <laughs>
0: But it sounds like it was also a good way in the early days for you to differentiate yourself from what your friend John Williams was doing, because he was focusing more on Cabin Merlot, and you got a chance to do Zan and Petitra.
2: yeah, i just I just did it. I mean, that's what I liked, so yeah, that's our total marketing strategy.: <laughs>
0: <laughs> And how have the last few vintages treated you? what do you
2: think very, about it? 12 and 13 were exceptional uh for quality and quantity we were very concerned about 13 it's the driest longest driest period in recorded history in california so i didn't think that we'd have much of a crop or that it would just burn up and but it i was astonished we, the crop is a little less but 12 and 13 were huge so and it's very very good harvest i i don't know how long this can keep up i mean No water. We had six inches of rain in Paso Robles last year. So that's a a cause for some concern. Paso's very shy on above and below ground water. I have three wells down there that I'm down to three gallons a minute between all three. It's a good thing I do dry farm down there. But I mean, for the winery, we have to put big storage tanks in. We'll recycle. We're working on recycling the water. But uh, there was a moratorium on wells down there. It's a big, big problem. They pulled out in Southern California a lot of Zinfandel, a lot of grapes, because people couldn't afford the water for what they were getting for the
0: grapes. And are those vineyards fallow, or are they a different grape now?
2: Um, you know, I haven't done the follow-up to see what they did. I heard they were full, pulled out so, or taken out of production. Now, whether it's fallow or actually pulled out of the ground, I don't know. It's pretty hard on the vine not to... Uh, a one, if you don't have the water, it'll probably die. But if you don't prune it or look after it, it goes
0: feral pretty quickly. It seems like, in a way, being a Zinfandel buyer's a buyers market, in terms of person who wants to buy grapes, because there's only a few wineries that are really been successful over the long term with Zinfandel, you being one of them?
2: Well, you know, it's tough. in Napa, there's only a couple of old vineyards. There's, I think, four total in, in all the Napa Valley. Sonoma, there's a few more. So, it, you know, if you're a grower and you want to make money, you're not farming Zinfandel. So that's put a lot of pressure on the vineyards. And so we buy fruit from Lodi, Contra Costa County, All over. And yes, we've been very fortunate to find these. I own some vineyards. We lease some. uh, We have long term contracts. Uh, We really value relationships more than transactions. So we've been successful there. But for really long term, I think you have to own a vineyard to protect yourself. You know, in Europe, and I travel with my wife, she has suppliers there that are multi generational. And so I kept keep telling myself that when I try to buy a vineyard and I say, I'm not buying it for myself, it's for my grandchildren, because you won't see the return in my lifetime.
0: How did you meet your wife?
2: I was doing what every winery owner does in the whole world. I was in Hawaii looking for a distributor so I could say, hey, I'm going on business to Hawaii. And I was talking to some pretty laid-back people over there. And somebody said, Chambers and Chambers is the best distributor. And that's Suzanne sitting over there. i walk over and introduce myself. And she stood up. And I said, whoa, honey, you passed the heights test. She was not amused. So I asked her out to lunch. And uh, when I took her back to her car, she skipped over to her car. And I knew she was mine. We were married within a year. That was 24 years ago. How about that, Suzanne?
0: <laughs> and she was in the burgundy business and is in a burgundy oh, business.
2: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. She imports and then distributes in all of California and Hawaii.
0: What else have you picked up from the European visits with her?
2: The importance of the vineyard,
0: a lot about
2: uh, sort of family succession. And I have some very good friends over there that have done that successfully. Uh, not taking yourself very seriously. I was fortunate I never took myself very seriously. But really saw, I, you know, come on, it's wine. Enjoy it, but can we talk about something else?
0: And dry farming, what does that bring?
2: You know, when I talked to European audience, it uh, doesn't mean anything to them. Because it rains in the summer over there. It doesn't rain in California in the, in the summer. It used to rain in the winter. But what we found with the old vineyards, the particularly the historic ones, is you know it's documented the roots go down about forty feet, can go down depending on the soil. They weather conditions and have weathered conditions that we can only imagine. They consist they handle heat and drought much better than irrigated vineyards. But I think the real the real benefit is in the, the balance that they bring to the wine and are able to maintain. Really good pH and sugar balance. If you tried to take and ripen a young vineyard to the levels where we think they're ripe, they would be very flabby. The pH would be up near four. Or an old vineyard, same crop load, you would have a three-three, three-four three, vintage pH with really great taste and sugars. Those are the two things. I think the many layers of flavor, but the flavor in the old vine vineyard is is just superb. The other thing is, we, we planted some tight spacings in, I think some of the first to be planted in California, three by six, 2,400 vines per acre, five to seven wires, holes, posts, tuck of canes, hedge the canes, and then drop half the crop to get the balance and intensity you want. And it works, but cry me, it's a lot of work, so... I look. I said, "Okay, I'm a little slow, but let's look at our vineyards. Gee, they're all ten by ten, 420 vines per acre. No posts, no wires, no irrigation, no cane tucking, and you got to drop very little fruit. So that's what we're doing now. We're going back to the old style of ten by ten cross-cultivating dry farm. Took from the library vineyard. There are 28 different varieties in it. So we." Took budwood from each variety and planted our own small little library vineyard. So we have that. And it's been so much fun. Young winemakers, when we planted out near the road in St. Helena, said, what are you doing? He said, we're dry farming. You can't do that. It'll all die. You know, and some people, I guess they don't get taught about history. I mean, all vineyards were one organic and two dry farmed. Unless you were near a big water source and the furrow irrigated. But most vineyards were dry farmed. In Paso Robles, when we bought the property down there, the elderly gentleman said, we planted in January, and we were very careful. They made a little pyramid in the bottom of the hole and spread the roots around, covered it up, and they never watered it ever. I wasn't that brave. We watered a little bit the first year, but after that, they've all been on their own. But it's extraordinary, and I think we're rewarded with really extraordinary wines
0: from that. So the balance finds itself in the vineyard.
2: Yes, yeah. You have to have a good site for it. I mean, you can't plant it in really heavy soils or you know inappropriate area, low place, full you know southwest. Sometimes get, in certain areas, gets a little too hot, and you get for us a baked taste. But if you have a good site, I, we, that's all we're doing now is dry farming.
0: Well, a lot of times, people talk about Zinfandel as having an uneven ripening pattern.
2: It, well, it's left to its own devices, but like I said, we spend a lot of time in the vineyard. One of the things to help with that uneven ripening is to at some point declare verasion is done today and to go make a pass through the vineyard and drop everything that's pink. Because those, those clusters are a good one to two points behind the rest of the clusters. At harvest, you can't recognize it, but that's where you get the green flavors and the green tastes. I see. So we, we drop that. And uh, we try to get good, good light penetration, and uh, we do have some of the venues at three by six, so we do leafing,
0: but it's not not necessarily on the ten by tens to do leafing because no. there's enough space. You get good dappled light, good air circulation. And what about raisins, like raisinated fruit?
2: Uh, well, you're going with Zinfandel. You will get some raisins. The beauty of a, a good destemmer is the the really hard raisins get taken out. Soft raisins, I don't mind. Uh, they're full, really intense flavor. They don't have the full-on raisin taste. And what for a long time, people, you know, said were confused about Zinfandel because you would pick it at 25 and you'd let people would let it start fermenting and, you know, it'd stay at 25 for the first three or four days, but it was fermenting. So what's up with that? Oh, it's reverse fermenting. But what's actually happening is all the sugar's being released from all the berries, the raisins and everything. So the sugar's going up at the same time that it's fermenting. So we cold soak the first three or four days and you see that rise in sugar. So then you get an accurate conversion factor from sugar to to alcohol. So we we don't use any any laboratory yeast. Like I said, we're pretty lazy in the winery.
0: But is that why but towards the end of the fermentation, it soaks up a little alcohol because then those berries get pressed.
2: Well, it, it, it doesn't so much soak up alcohol, but at, at the end when you're testing it, but when you're doing pumpos with a hydrometer and it's reading zero or a little negative, uh, you say, okay, it's dry. And then when you press it, you break those berries, and that releases the sugar that didn't come out of, uh, of the intact berries. And that's what it takes a while then to finish the primary fermentation in the barrels.
0: And what about vineyard management? Is it something that you do always that you manage your own vineyards? We control the farming in all the vineyards, whether we own them or not.
2: So we don't do all the farming, we do a lot of the farming, but we control all of it, the practices, the timing, which is critical, uh, and obviously the pick dates and any amendments, compost, cover crops. We use cover crops in almost every single vineyard. Timing of that's important. And then in spring, it's with the the old vines, it's very important, the timing of when you mow, when you disc, as frost approaches. Because in a, in a flat or slightly sloped vineyard, the cover crop is often taller than the, than the low vines. So if you have a frost night, it just holds it in there. And you need to mow every other row to have an avenue for the frost. We oh, had, I
0: didn't know that's why they did that.
2: We had a, a miscommunication with a grower we asked him to mow it we meant right then we had he didn't we had a frost event and we got 0.6 tons per acre from that vineyard because of the frost so yeah timing is very critical
0: is it unusual on napa to be both the guy who makes the farming decisions and the guy who makes the wine decisions
2: i don't know to answer that it shouldn't be but i don't know you know unfortunately i say unfortunately it's still only i'd say less than 10 percent of people that do organic full organic practices but and why do you think that is It's hard to change people's minds you know they're they're comfortable they have a problem they can put a chemical on and take care of that problem unfortunately they take care of all the other natural solutions to that problem but i mean it's for people i mean it's it's hard to change physicians minds i mean the Look at the medical practices that it takes so long to change. Winemakers, you get four winemakers together, you get eight opinions. And everybody thinks they're right. So it's, it's hard to convince that people think you're taking all their tools away, which is, is quite the opposite. you are giving them much more in their tool chest.
0: Do you feel like your own wines are more in tune with an earlier style of, of Napa winemaking? A real early style, Yes.
2: Uh, With less wood, I mean, as in, we used 20% new wood. And I I think the balance, I think wines used to be very well balanced. They weren't so heavily irrigated, fertilized. Yeah, I identify with that quite
0: a bit. What do you like to drink besides your own wines?
2: Well, I must admit that uh, my wife does bring up a nice Burgundy now and then. I like Riesling a lot. In San Sebastian, I drank a lot of Chocoli wines. Wow. You know, I like, I really, really like local foods with local wines. I mean, that's just in Europe because it, they've been doing it so long. And I was there and, you know, growing up in the South, I didn't have a really good experience with Lambrusca. And we were in the region and in a hotel. And the guy said, well, all I have is the local wine. I said, great. So, and it was delightful with the cuisine, uh, It was unlike what I'd grew up, you know, having
0: in the South, I have to admit. Has it surprised you just how much wine culture has changed in terms of the United States? Yes.
2: There's been a huge amount of progress. And I, I that's very exciting to see. You know, there's there's some practices, although I'd like to see, you know, in the vineyard changed. Winemaking, I mean, it's, people vote with their wallet, so things will always equalize there.
0: In terms of 35, 38 different bottlings, do you think you would have so many if they were all in your backyard? I mean, no, no, not at all.
2: I mean, so people say, you know, a lot of wine writers look at a vintage and say, you know, Cabernet's not very good, so it's a bad vintage. Cabernet has very little to do with what we do in Zinfandel. We're typically 2011. We're in and done before the rains, and they're waiting on Cabernet. So, yes, it may rain in one region, not another. may be hot, have a frost in one. So, we're very lucky to have such a wide range. Uh, and they're very different. I mean, in the Sierras, it's all decomposed granite. Paso Robles, I'm lucky to be on all calcium soils. The wines are very European down there. Europeans pick that one out. I can always spot that, the wines from down there.
0: Does that give more attention to
2: the texture of the wine? Well, they're highly alkaline soils, or pH eight, 8, and a half, But the wines, it gives them a very, I don't understand the chemistry, but it gives them a very pronounced acid backbone. I think they'll be some of our longest aging. But it's just that structure hung on the acid with all the other balancing fruits and tannins that I think are reminiscent of European wines. I also got carried away and planted the largest plantation for truffles in, North America down there because of the calcium.
0: Oh, is that true? Like black truffles, like perigord style? Mm-hmm.
2: Tuber melanosporum. Bought a dog, trained the dog. Dog didn't find any truffles, sold the dog. Still no truffles, but, you know, it's hard to uh, irrigate, but I don't have much water. Six inches of rain, you're not going to have truffles. When I planted it eight years ago, we still had some rainfall, so I may end up with a nice forest.
0: Because it seems like, at least in the Piemonte, the bad years for wine are the good years for truffles.
2: Because of rain during harvest. Yeah. So, harvest season for us is January through March. So, they need a rainy fall so that I, I can't do that down there. Unless the weather pattern changes quite a bit or I hit Eureka well.
0: Seems like a good way to feel good about a bad harvest though. Yeah, right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Like, oh, we're screwed on the wine thing, but we got lots of truffles. <laughs>
2: I have uh, about 600 olive trees, so we we pick those right after, usually after the wine harvest. That That's fun. Where
0: does that go? Do you make olive oil?
2: make olive oil and uh, organically and sell it down in the Paso Robles Tasting Room.
0: Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I'd like to try that one. Well,
2: it's well, they're old trees, about 100 years old, about 250 of them. I have some younger trees, but older trees are alternate bearing, So some years we get 10 tons. I think this year it's not even worth picking. So, it's not for. Again, that's why my card says what it does.
0: What are, are there things that you've learned from doing olives that you didn't know that affected how you do grapes?
2: I think more. We were doing grapes before the olives. We've I've learned a lot about pruning uh, olive trees. A great line is the guy said, "You want to prune it so you can throw a cat through it." <laughs> and so. I got a little carried away, and the guy said, Oh Larry, you don't have to throw a mountain lion through it. <laughs> I didn't get much
0: off that tree. You were just trying to give yourself room for, in case you had <laughs> bad aim. <laughs> yeah. Let me make a bigger
2: target over there. Oh, my. So, yeah, I have learned a lot. The trees, when I took over the 250 trees in Napa, they hadn't been pruned in probably 40 years. So they were taller than the, the big electrical wires. So it took about three years of serious chainsaw work to lower them. And people thought we were just destroying them, Come running down the driveway. But I had a guy out of Chico really knew what he was doing. It was a ton of work, but they all touched. The canopies touched. They're 20 feet apart. So there's no greenery below where they touched, either on the tree or on the ground, no grass grew or anything. So now I've lowered it so we can pick with a standard picking uh, ladder. And now things grow and... And there's much better foliage and things grow. We put a cover crop in in the orchard also.
0: What are the things that the California wine industry as a whole could do to improve going forward for the next 30 years?
2: Well, I think um, what I would like to see is more emphasis really on organic farming to really get away from the chemicals. Chemicals kill everything. I mean, I had a disaster... I went out one day and I said, there's something wrong here. My whole garden, the vegetable garden, just looked terrible. Then I started looking around and almost every plant, the trees, all the olive trees and everything. And it was just like the plague had come through. And it turns out across the street, the state had sprayed unbelievably toxic herbicide in the creek alongside the creek to get rid of something that was non-native well it was a hot windy day it came right down the creek it got all my vegetables all the broadleaf stuff all the olive trees it tainted so i had no crop that year all the grapes i had a small vineyard there at the house but you know i said i've been eating this stuff until i noticed the signs of it but that's commonly used i mean there's there's all sorts of stuff that i mean some of it has seven-day re-entry. You have to have a full rebreather mask when you apply it. You have to put up signs with skull and crossbones. And you can, you'll see it, that you cannot enter that vineyard for seven days. You know, Here, enjoy the wine. I, it just doesn't make sense. You know, If we have a problem with aphids, we buy predator aphids and release them. We don't spray something and kill every living thing. And you have much less insect problems or really disease problems if you have a healthy vineyard. Vineyards that are not healthy, that are stressed, are hotter and insects know it's like a magnet for insects. Harmful insects. We we think the more insects the better because there's 40,000 insects and only about 200 are bad. So we plant peripheral insect areas around the vineyard. Uh, it's not monoculture by any stretch in the areas where we farm. We use uh, barn owl boxes for gopher control. We tried, we tried the, I had a short lived relationship with a a biodynamic gentleman, and we were just being devastated by gophers. He said, There's no problem. He said, Capture, you know, trap some, skin them, burn the skins, and put the ashes out in the vineyard. Well, the vineyard workers that worked for me thought I was crazy when I asked them that. So we did. It really stinks. So we spread the ashes out. Next year, even more gophers. I said, Monsieur, it did did not work. He said, you did it wrong. So that was the end of that. So we hired Mr. Gopher from Santa Rosa. He told us about the Alpha Gopher and uh Modified 400 traps, and we, between the barn owls and us, we trapped 2,000 gophers in one season, and have had much less problems.
0: What's an alpha gopher?
2: It's the male that they have several litters a year. They just learned. They taught the guys. I wasn't there when he taught them. Taught them how to recognize an active hold, so you don't just put a put a a trap in a in some place there where they moved on from. And I guess they're colonies of them and the alpha male is sort of like a queen bee
0: oh um good work if you can get it yeah good, <laughs> well put did your sister's success your sister helen's success in the wine business surprise you to the extent that it was so successful
2: uh no she that's the reason she helped me in 93 and 94 she's very knowledgeable i mean she opened the door for us that, that, to make wines like this, and we never went back through the door. We stayed on the other side. It was pretty controversial in 93, the wines we made. Is that true? These Big 17% alcohol wines uh, were dark and just exploded in your mouth. And, uh, at single vineyard. We named them as single vineyards. And, well, people wrote articles about the evils of high alcohol. It's interesting, the... We still have big, flavorful wines. They're a little less uh, high in alcohol, or I don't even know if they're high in alcohol. And people said, have you changed your style? And I think what really has changed is that with persistent, really good agricultural practices, they ripen physiologically earlier. So that's the main thing that I've seen.
0: So the farming means you, you can pick a little earlier? Yes. And that means maybe there's a little more acidity sometimes.
2: Absolutely. And you run less risk of the weather changing in the in the fall.
0: And that's probably nice when you're a debtor and you're like, let's get those <laughs> grapes in if
2: we can, right? And Tegan said, They're not ready. We're not picking. <laughs>
0: what about ageability? The wines how what's been your own experience with your turly wines?
2: Well, I, I my personal taste is that I, I like them five to six years old. I like fruit. I like the taste. I used to argue with Parker. He came every year, comes every year to taste the wines. And he would say, Oh, this wine will age 20 years. I said, But will it get more fruit? And he said, No. I said, Well, what's the point? Uh, the Petites Raw now, I, I had a 97 the other night and a 99, and they are extraordinary that i i like the older part but for zen for the most part i like the fresh really balance between fruit and tannins that that a younger wine has
0: sometimes people say that about riesling like i like it when it's fruity not when it's yeah. like diesel-y. you know <laughs> yeah. I, I
2: was in hawaii and suzanne used to do a project every year called the winter wine escape and i was Walking by the pool to go uh, body surfing, I said Larry, "You want to come over and taste some Riesling? You know, it's a ninety-five degrees. Uh, you know, not really. No, no, Larry, it's twenty-five year old Riesling. Oh, Christ, double no." But I went over, being a good husband, and it was Johannes Selbach. Oh, sure. And uh, I tasted this, and it was cold and crisp, and I said, "Wow!" And now every year I go hunting wild boar with him in Germany, and we have Riesling with wild boar, which is really, really good. So I learned a lot. I'm glad I did walk over and taste that.
0: Your wife steered you right a few times. She has. Thank you, honey. What about Christina, the the white... uh, Oh, my God. This girl's
2: got ideas. I
0: don't know what the deal is. She's (laughs) got opinions.
2: It's
0: not not how you raised her, right?
2: (laughs) Where do you get all these ideas? Yeah. And then Nellie, my second daughter, is working with us. She's in operations and finances. She comes in with a receipt, what's this for? Oh, well, you know, it's for, no, really, what, what am I going to put on it? Well, it was, you know, I, I had to buy some for the trucks. Or, so it's been a handful. No, it's been a lot of fun, but boy, oh, boy. I mean, it's not just a couple of ideas. It's a bunch of them. So it's been delightful. My two younger children are still in college. I have four daughters, a female dog female cats, a female wife. I live in an estrogen storm. It's never dull.
0: Larry Turley, it's never dull and it's been delightful. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Larry Turley of Turley Wine Cellars. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levi Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose,